If you would remain standing and open your Bibles again, we find ourselves in John's Gospel, continuing our study there. Nearing the end of the farewell discourse, all that's left now is Jesus is going to, after this section, he's going to pray for his disciples. He's going to cross the Kidron Valley, and there he's going to be arrested. You have to think about these things. Think about the timeline that's going on as you read this. You need to think, oh man, it's about to be terrible. So kind of frame that in your mind as... We read God's word together. We'll pick up in verse 16. And we'll read through verse 33. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. A little while you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly, not using figurative speech. Now we know that you, are, that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. 
Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, thank you for this, your word. Truly, it is light and life, and much like these disciples, Lord, we still exist with so many misunderstandings. So would you help give us eyes to see and hearts to believe? Lord, encourage us, turn our sorrow to joy. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had just a, a deep misunderstanding? Of course, all of us have. You probably had several this week. You misunderstood what you were supposed to do, and so you do the wrong thing. You misunderstand instructions on an on a exam that you're taking. Misunderstanding can lead to all kinds of chaos. That's what goes on in our lives all the time. And I think misunderstanding forms the, the backdrop of everything that Jesus is doing here at the end of his time with his disciples, right before he prays for them and then is arrested. They misunderstand some fundamental things about him. For the last couple of weeks, in the farewell discourse, Jesus has done two primary things. One, he has tried to prepare his disciples, this young church, for the things that are to come. He wants them to know that the road ahead is not easy. And he's telling them, guys, this is not going to be easy. Second, another thing that he's done alongside of that is he's pointed again and again to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You are not going to be able to sustain yourself. You need the Holy Spirit who will sustain you and keep you. When the Spirit comes in power, he's going to bring conviction. He's going to work glory in his people. Now Jesus shifts from the work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to convict to how the disciples are going to respond in the coming days. We need to remember where we are in this account. These are either the last words of Jesus in the upper room, or they've left the upper room and are walking through the city, talking as they go, and Jesus is teaching them in either case, again, we need to remember his time is limited. He's facing the cross. And this is the last recorded exchange in John's gospel between Jesus and his disciples. This is it before the cross. Everything else, every other time we see him interacting with them is after that work of crucifixion and resurrection. So what do you think he's going to say the very, at the very end to his disciples? That's what we have before us today. A great question that I would love to like pop in right at this moment. If I could pop into the scene, I would ask the disciples, what do you expect? 
is about to happen? What are your expectations? And I think it's a great and honest question for each and every one of us. What are our expectations of Jesus? What kind of Jesus do we expect? We have so many expectations in this life about what we think should happen next. It's natural. But many of us spend most of our time, days, weeks, months, and years trying to precisely orchestrate what we can expect out of our life. We want to manipulate what happens next. We don't like our expectations to be shifted. We don't like when something takes us off guard. None of us like that. That's an incredibly, wildly uncomfortable feeling. However, what if we aren't in control? What if despite our best efforts, we can't control the events that are coming? We don't know when we're going to get some wild phone call about a loved one or something just devastatingly hard is going to happen. We don't know. That's the exact place the disciples are in here with Jesus. They have this vast misunderstanding about what's coming. And Jesus, at the very end of the farewell discourse, is trying to push back against some of those misunderstandings. First, they misunderstand the crucifixion. It still has not landed on them yet. They misunderstand the resurrection. It has not landed on them yet. They misunderstand the hour. It hasn't fully hit them yet. So we'll approach our text in those grids first. The first misunderstanding is a Christ without a cross. Notice verse 16 again. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Jesus is telling them what's about to happen. I'll be with you a little while longer, and then you're not going to see me. I'm going to be out of the picture. And then a little while after that, you will see me again. They don't get it. The next three verses, they're all just kind of talking about it. Like they huddle up in, in little groups. That's what I imagine the disciples doing. Like, what? What in the world is Jesus talking about? That's the next three verses in the text. It's showing us in the text they totally misunderstand what he's talking about. The disciples believe. We heard that all the way back in John chapter 2. They believed in Christ, but that faith is not yet fully orbed. and They have not listened closely about this ministry that is coming ahead for Jesus. John chapter 7, Jesus said... I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. John chapter 12, Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. John chapter 13, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. John 14, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Time and time again, he said the same thing. 
And the other Gospels make it even more explicit. In Matthew 16, we read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He had been very clear with them. But they couldn't see it. Why? Why couldn't they see it? Because they were waiting for a different kind of kingdom. And I think many of us don't see the cross because we want a different kind of kingdom. We don't want our king to, we want, listen, we want a king to come in and set everything up right for us. Our kingdom is just fine. We're in good shape. We have this king who comes and restores and his enemies are my enemies. They line up perfectly. We have the same political party. We have the same interest in life. And he comes and sets all those interests in place for us and gets everything situated for us. We want that kind of king. We totally misunderstand that this king would have to come and suffer and die. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. They knew all the promises of, the, of a coming king and they skip over Genesis 3.15. They skip over Isaiah 52, the, the text we read earlier in 53. If you would just go on to read what this suffering servant king would do, it's, it's horrible. He's going to come and die. You have to skip over Zechariah 12, the entire book of Leviticus. Just skip over it. Over and over again, the Old Testament, we read that the coming Messiah would come. He would suffer. He would die. He's the Lamb of God. What happens to lambs? They're sacrificed. The disciples want a kingdom without blood. They don't get it. That's not what they expect. Why would it be so hard for the disciples to understand what Jesus had to do? Verse 18, what does he mean yet a little while? We don't, we don't know what he's talking about. It doesn't make sense. I think the reason is clear. And I think all of us have this problem. And the problem is this. The biggest issue we have is out there. My biggest issue, right, I'm one of the disciples, my biggest issue is the fact that Rome is in here over, lording, lording it over us. Pilate is the, the main leader, and I like none of it. That's my biggest issue. Jesus, clean that issue up. The problem is out there. But see, crucifixion and the reason Jesus have, is having to come against these misunderstandings is a crucified Christ says the problem is not fundamentally out there. It's not fundamentally your neighbor. It's not fundamentally the, the things that we see that are bad on the news. A crucified Christ says this, your fundamental problem is inside. It's your own sin. It's very hard to see. That, that is the foundation of their misunderstanding. Listen, it's, it's somebody else's issue. If it's somebody else's issue, he wouldn't have to die. 
The problem is not out there. If we start with this notion that we're basically okay, we're basically good, then we do not need a Jesus to come and die for us. If we're basically okay and fundamentally good, all we really need is a little bit of help. Do you ever view Jesus like that? Like, I'm pretty good. I just need Jesus to come and help me get a little bit better. This fundamental misunderstanding about I'm going away. They haven't connected the dots. He's going to have to die in my place. I am that bad. I don't need a little Jesus to come along and prop me up and help me feel better about myself and actually have all the same opinions that I have. That's not enough. That's not enough. They needed the suffering servant to come and take their place. They needed a Jesus who would take their place before God, who would atone for their sins. We have such a hard time with this. We've always struggled with it. Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre says this, it is better to live on one's feet than to die on your knees. He does not need a Jesus to die for him. You don't need to bow the knee. You don't need to pray. You don't need to submit yourself to, to this Christ. You're not that bad. We have such a hard time We don't think that our lives actually deserve death like this. We live in a world in open rebellion to God. We don't like the idea that God would have to come into the world and die to save sinners like us. That's the offense of the gospel. That's where this fundamental misunderstanding comes from. They don't get it. Why is he going away? We don't like the idea that sinners must be rescued by God. And that it's his work through and through, beginning to end. Just as the disciples misunderstood what Jesus had come to do, we too struggle to grasp the depth of our sin. We need a big Jesus. Because we're big sinners. Fundamental to Christianity is the realization that we are sinners in need of grace. For honest, though we, we often live like the cross and the crucifixion is a tangent. It's, a, it's an attachment to Christianity. It's not the centerpiece of it. It sits over to the side. And then when, when is the last time you, you lived, and this is a crazy connection, when is the last time you lived in joy? in peace, in the full satisfaction of knowing who you are in Christ. That's why he came. Listen, the gospel, the good news would not be good news apart from the cross. If Jesus did not die in our place, it is not good news. The primary application for us is clear, do we need a crucified Messiah or not? Do we just need help? Lord, help me get all my stuff together. 
help me get all the stuff that I want? Or do we need a bloody, crucified Savior, one who has taken our place before the Father? Not only do they misunderstand the cross, where he's going, they misunderstand resurrection. Look at verse 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Your sorrow will turn into joy. He doesn't set the cross aside, but he goes through the cross and says, the world is going to celebrate. They're going to be really happy. But then your sorrow, your tears, your confusion, your being afraid, it's going to turn into joy. Guys, this is going to look bad. You're going to have a lot of grief in the coming days. You're going to lament and you're going to weep. But then one day, one day, very soon, it's all going to be pure joy. It's truly remarkable to see how the New Testament writers reflect on the cross. Because the cross is horrible. Listen, the, the Romans were masterful in executing undesirables. It's a terrible way to die. You're stripped naked. You're nailed to planks of wood. That those planks of wood get lifted up. It's a public spectacle, and it takes a long time to die. They are masters at it. And that spectacle, that terrible spectacle across the New Testament is viewed as glory, as beauty. 1 Corinthians 2, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is boasting in the cross. 1 Peter 1, Peter exalts in the precious blood of Christ. Revelation 5 tells us the hymn of heaven, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. The New Testament again and again and again looks back on the cross of Christ and says it's glory. How? Why? How can the cross turn our sorrow to joy? And it's this, because he doesn't remain dead. It's because Jesus conquers death in glorious resurrection. How can the writers of Scripture and church history praise the glory of the cross? How can we today praise the glory of something so horrible? It's terrible. Because death did not hold him. Spurgeon says this, heartily do we lament our sin, but we do not lament that Christ has put it away, nor lament the death by which he puts it away. Rather, our hearts rejoice in all his atoning agonies and glory at every mention of that death by which he has reconciled us to God, end quote. We revel in it. We glory in it. How can the writers of Scripture and church history praise this glory? What does that mean for believers? Paul in Galatians 6 says, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
what they fundamentally misunderstand is his death and his resurrection. They don't get it. They haven't seen it yet. And Paul says that his boast, and that's a great application question. Is that our boast? Is that what we're most proud of? That Christ has come for us sinners, that he died, that he was crucified, that he was laid in a tomb and the tomb could not hold him, but he rose, conquering death and glorious resurrection. Is it our boast? How is boasting in the cross even possible? It's only possible if he's raised. Listen to Jesus' illustration. He, he, he sets suffering and glory side by side. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Suffering, agony, set side by side with glory and beauty. I think it's really interesting that he points to birth as an image here. How can we not remember Jesus interacting with Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you must be born again. Do you remember his question? Jesus, how am I supposed to do that? Crawl back into my mother's womb? Do you remember what Jesus tells him? Nicodemus, the wind has to blow. In other words, it's the Spirit of God has to make this happen. What, what turns our sorrow into joy? The wind has to blow. The Spirit of God breaking into us, revealing that Christ actually came in the flesh, that He was crucified and risen. That turns our sorrow into joy. In addition to the great joy of the resurrection, the resurrection will answer so many of their questions. They don't understand so many things, but when they see him, when they meet him face to face, all these disparate things will, will fall into place. In the kingdom of God, in his economy, what turns sorrow into joy is the resurrection of Christ. Hope offered because it means the curse has been conquered. This leads to a third misunderstanding of the disciples. They misunderstand the hour. Jesus opens this section by telling them that he's been speaking in figures of speech. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. There's a sense in which his entire teaching and preaching ministry has been veiled because the disciples and the listeners don't yet fully get it. He's made some very clear statements about going away. He's made some very clear statements about his death, and nobody's connecting the dots. They're not getting it. And in this context, Jesus gives them two kind of anchor points to hold on to. They're fundamentally misunderstanding so much. But in, in the process, he says this, In that day you will ask in my name, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Listen, for the Father himself loves you. 
the Father himself loves you. Just let that sink in. There are so many of us who, who, who haven't had a good dad or a good male figure in our life. You don't know what it is to, to be in chaos in this moment and to have your dad show up on the scene and know as soon as you see, oh, he's here, that things are going to be okay. That's what Jesus is telling them. Look, right before his life gets wrecked, right before their lives get utterly wrecked, utterly undone, he says, you are loved by the Father. And then Jesus goes on to spell out his mission in summary. He goes all the way back to the beginning where John shows us the eternal Logos has existed with the Father and then has sent back into the world by the Father. He's come to make the love of God known to the world. And now at the very end, he's spelling out his whole mission. I came from the Father and now I'm going back to the Father. Jam these two realities together. You are utterly loved by the Father, and this mission is as big as it possibly can get. That the eternal Son of God comes from heaven because of that love to sinners like us, and He accomplishes His mission and will return to the Father. And that is the gospel that we need. It's very small, very intimate. God the Father knows you and loves you. Intimate, small. And also he backs out and says it's as big as it possibly could get. If we back away, we see here the work of the Trinity. The Son sent to earth by the Father to speak his words, to work his works, to be crucified, dead and buried, to rise and ascend to the Father. And the Spirit is given to apply that all over the world to you and me today. It's imminent. It's today, and yet it's also eternal. The Bible says that we have eternity built into our hearts. We long for it. We long for something bigger than ourselves. And every single one of us, whether we admit it or not, are desperate to be loved. We just want to be loved, fully known. Yet all of us want to be loved. And Jesus, at the end of his interaction with his disciples, he's telling them that exact thing. You are loved. And I'm going to accomplish what God sent me to accomplish. The Father himself loves you. That's the core of what Jesus has been trying to teach the disciples the entire time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's a central theme. Jesus is saying that in him we have both the the love of the Father and salvation accomplished. Look at the response of the disciples. Ah, now you're speaking plainly, Jesus. Thank you. You're you're clearing everything up. We know that we know all the good stuff now. We got it. No, Jesus comes back and says, no, you you fundamentally misunderstand. Do you now believe, Jesus says? Behold, the hour is coming and indeed has come when you will be scattered, each of you to his own home, and you will leave me alone. 
Guys, you still don't get it. And the question comes to us today, do we get it? He says, you're going to see me die and you're going to be scattered. You're going to be scared to death. You're going to go home. You're going to lock your doors. You're going to close your blinds. You're going to sit in your bathroom and hope nobody knocks on the door. You're going to be scared. They totally misunderstand the hour. I think to one degree or another, that's every single one of us here. We say we get it. We get you, Jesus. But in reality, when things are hard, when temptation comes our way, when life does not go our way, when something unexpected happens, just like the disciples, we scatter. Scared to death. His resources aren't enough. The reality of the gospel is not enough. I've got to hide. I've got to run. Scared to death. But Jesus says something very interesting. He says, everybody's going to leave me, but in that moment, so through his arrest, trial, through the beatings, through the torment, through the being nailed to the cross, he says, I am not alone. I am not alone. That is beautiful because he's saying, the Father is with me. The Father is with me. You will leave me, Jesus says to his disciples. You will leave. The Father will not leave me. When something bad happens in our life, something that we can't control, the wheels are flying off. How comforting to know in that moment that we are loved. We are utterly cared for by our Heavenly Father. In the farewell discourse, Jesus is not leaving his disciples with rebuke. He leaves them with the glorious truth of cross, of resurrection. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Jesus tells them, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. Listen, child of God, just take these words in. His death and resurrection are imminent. And he's saying, I'm saying all these things to you about death and resurrection and glory so that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. It's not you might have tribulation. Jesus is promising at the end of his ministry You will have tribulation in the world. But then he says, take heart. Cheer up. Not because your circumstances are so good. Take heart. What does he say at the end of that? I have overcome the world. What is this cross and resurrection business all about? It's about Jesus overcoming this sinful world. And even before he goes to the cross, he says it's done. I've already done it. I win, Jesus says. You ever wonder who wins? He's saying it right here. Listen, let it wash over you. He came for peace. In this world, he promises, he's telling them, you will have tribulation, but take heart, child of God. Christ has overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your word. It is astounding. Lord, in this life we have so many misunderstandings like the disciples. 
In this life, we have tribulation. In this world, we have trouble. May we take heart and be reminded that you, Lord, have overcome the world, and you did it through death and resurrection. Shape us by these things today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.